15, verse 13. And again, I just wanted to remind you of the the turning point that took place here in Matthew 16. If you think about the the gospel of Matthew as a whole, Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4. And we, we know then from Matthew 4 really through 16, Jesus is ministering primarily to large crowds. Right to great crowds, he's he's uh, uh, proclaiming the good news that the long-awaited kingdom of God had arrived in him, in his person, because he is the King, he is the Messiah, and so we 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 saw for several chapters how Jesus uh, preached with authority. He he demonstrated the that the kingdom of God had arrived by doing by casting out demons, by healing the sick, by doing other miracles. Um, he. He taught people what, what the kingdom of God was like, what it, what it meant um, to live in the kingdom of God. And remember, they were astounded as a, at his authority. He teaches as one with great authority. And so that all really was leading to this, this culmination, this turning point in, in Matthew chapter 16. Remember there, beginning in verse 13, Jesus asked the disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And they report back, and then he says, but who do you say that I am? Because Jesus had called these 12 men to follow him. They were following him as, as their rabbi, and they were getting to observe his public ministry, and then they were also benefiting from his private instruction as well, right? Instruction and just getting to live with Jesus 24-7 and observe him. So that all uh, came to this, this climactic point here in Matthew 16. Um, what is it? Verse 16 as well, Matthew 16, 16, where Simon Peter, in response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, right? Um, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father. And so that marked a turning point because look down at verse 21 of Matthew 16. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so you see it says from that time on. So the turning point there in Matthew 16 is that now Jesus is not going to be uh, ministering primarily to the crowds. Rather, his main focus is going to be uh, the 12 disciples and preparing them, teaching them uh, what he is about to do in Jerusalem. All right? And they're actually going to be uh, moving to Jerusalem as he's doing this. And so, you know, at this point, they've recognized that he is the Messiah by God's grace. They've recognized that. But now they must understand what, he, uh, what kind of Messiah he's come to be, what, what um, his mission is in coming to this earth. And so there in, in that passage that I just read, verses 21 and following, that was Jesus um, giving what, what we could say a prediction of what's going to happen. He's saying, we're going to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and I'll be raised on the third day. And of course, we see there Peter responded, you know, just like, no, by no means, Lord, this can't happen to you, right? Well, now in our passage in chapter 17, in verse 22, we have Jesus predicting a second time what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And so he's just going to continue to do this little by little, keep teaching the disciples of, of what's going to take place. So let's, uh, let's consider our passage this morning. Let's read it. Our text today is 
Matthew 17, verses 22 through 27. So I'd ask the congregation to stand once again, please, for the reading of God's word. Matthew 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And he came into the house, and Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, well, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast out a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open it, its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Thanks be to God for his word. What a privilege we have of, of hearing the word of God today. Please be seated. So we have two brief accounts in, in our text this morning. And by the way, that second one there about the temple text, it's only found in Matthew's gospel. So it may, may or may not be as familiar to some of you. Uh, in these two brief accounts, we once again see the glory of Jesus Christ. We see his deity, we see his power and his humility. And that's the title of our message today, Humility for the Sake of the Gospel. I entitled the sermon, Humility for the Sake of the Gospel. As we study these verses, I want us to consider how Jesus humbles himself in order to save his people and how he calls us, his followers, to do the same. So today I want to highlight two ways that Jesus demonstrates humility for the sake of the gospel. First, we see there in verses 22 and 23 that the Son of Man allows himself to be betrayed and killed by men. The Son of Man allows himself to be betrayed and killed by men. Of course, that hasn't happened yet here in Matthew 17, but he's saying it's going to happen, right? Verse 22 as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Like I said, this is the second, uh, you could say, prediction or declaration that Jesus gives of what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem, that he's going to die and rise again. And this announcement here in 17 um, it largely repeats what he said in 16, actually kind of abbreviates it, uh, but it does give us a new important detail, and I want to highlight that before we focus on the humility aspect here. Notice it says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Delivered is the Greek word paradidomai. It means to hand over. It's, it's used in the Bible a couple of different ways. Uh, one way it's used kind of just positively to to hand over something, to entrust uh, something to, to someone else, right? But then it's also used in a negative way, specifically talking about to hand someone over to be killed, right? And obviously that's how Jesus is using it here. And so this is talking about how Jesus is going to be handed over to the, to the authorities, right? And he'll, he'll be arrested, he'll be, he'll be tried, he'll be killed, 
the hands of men. But also in this verb, it specifically points to the betrayal of Jesus. And that's really the, the new um, insight that this passage gives us. That verb paradidomai often includes um, this, this idea of, this, of the hostile motivation behind the handing over. In other words, it, it came to be um, used to describe betrayal. And every time in the Bible when, when um, uh, it speaks of Judas's betrayal, it's using this word right here. Okay, so that for, for those of us who already kind of know the, how the story is going to unfold, right, this is, this is like a, the first kind of ominous hint of it's not just that Jesus is going to be killed by his enemies, but in, in, in that uh, transpiring, there's going to be a betrayal from within, right? One of his own is going to betray him and hand him over to his enemies. So I just wanted to point that out to you. Another um, slightly new detail in this, in this uh, uh, announcement is we see the disciples' response, right? Of course, in chapter 16, we saw Peter respond very strongly, uh, right? You know, may this never happen to you, um, rebuking Jesus even, right? And so you could, you certainly implied in that was that the disciples were distressed and confused, right, about this. But here, Matthew explicitly tells us at the end of verse 23 that the disciples were greatly distressed, so they're hearing Jesus announce what's going to happen to him, and they are just, I mean, they're, they're sorrowful. They're, they're distressed. And so that, once again, we realize they're focusing on the, on the, the arresting, on the death, right? They're, they're not able right now to get past the fact that Jesus is saying he's going to die. It's like they're not, they're not hearing the, the part about him being raised from the dead. Okay? But what I want us to focus on today is look back at that statement that Jesus gives there beginning in 22. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Again, the Son of Man allows himself to be betrayed and killed by men. We've talked about that title before, the Son of Man. It's actually Jesus' favorite title with, with which to refer to himself. Um, and it was, when every time he used it, it was, it was a veiled reference back to, do you, do you remember what passage in the Old Testament? Right? These are things we need to be learning as believers, right? When we hear Son of Man, I want you to think Daniel chapter 7, okay? Daniel chapter 7. Jesus was giving veiled reference to the prophecy of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read that to you. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. There, Daniel, the prophet Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. And earlier in chapter 7, it talked about the ancient of days. Uh, that's, that's like God the Father, right? And so this son of man came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. <laughs> you catch that? Everybody should serve him. All authority and dominion is given to him. Verse 14 continues in Daniel 7. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
So when we hear the title Son of Man, we need to think eternal king, almighty king, king over all, right? And so what a contrast we see here in Matthew 17 when it says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, right? And and I think the Spirit led Matthew to to say it that way, even to highlight that contrast. He doesn't say, oh, they're going to be handed over to the chief priests and the and then the Roman rulers and all that, which is going to be true, right? But just that contrast, the Son of Man into the hands of men. Think about that. The Son of Man, the one to whom is given all authority, is handed over to little human authorities. The, the divine King who will reign forever is betrayed and killed by mere mortals. And it reminds us, loved ones, Jesus could have stopped this if he had wanted to, right? Again, Jesus is predicting. He's saying this is going to happen, and he's actually moving toward Jerusalem so that it will happen. But when you read the, the Bible, you see Jesus is not a victim. He is doing this voluntarily, right? I mean, there's so many examples of that. But just fast forward all the way to the night of his arrest, Right? Remember when, when they, they're in the garden and then, then uh, the, the, whatever, the soldiers of the, of the priests come and, and try to arrest Jesus and, and Peter pulls out his sword as, to try to defend Jesus? In Matthew 26, 52, on, Jesus will, on that night will tell Peter, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? Jesus had armies of angels at his disposal. Not to mention that as the God-man, he could have turned his, his, uh, those who were trying to arrest him, he could have turned them to dust, Right? As a matter of fact, if you read John's account, it's kind of humorous when they're, they're like, we've come to arrest Jesus. And he's like, I am he. And boom, you know, they fall backwards, you know. I mean, just showing his, his power. It's like Jesus has to kind of keep this thing moving and help him along. Like, hey, guys, here I am, okay? Right? But again, I say all this to say Jesus was humbling himself in an amazing way, it's like we run out of words to try to describe what it must have been like for the Son of God to not only become a human, but then to willingly let other evil humans take him and kill him. Jesus willingly humbled himself. In John ten eighteen, the passage where Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. As we heard earlier, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He willingly humbled himself for the sake of the gospel. Let me just read that verses 6 through 8 to you again from Philippians 2 who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of his divine attributes, but emptied himself of of that glory by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of, of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus willingly left the glories of heaven in obedience to his Father and humbly became a man in order to live and die in the place of his people. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man, he says that term again, right, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And again, what an amazing um, reversal that is. Because what I just read from Daniel 7, the Son of Man is the one to whom all the nations will come and bow down and serve. And yet, the Son of Man came here to serve and to give his life as a ransom to, to rescue his people. What love and humility Jesus demonstrates for our good and God's glory. I pray that today, you're, even in this brief consideration, that you are just once again captivated by the humility of Christ. Jesus, God's King, was willing to be arrested, mocked, spit upon, beaten, tortured, and killed so that we could be saved. He showed great, great, great humility for the sake of the gospel. He showed humility in order to accomplish the gospel. Then, secondly, here in verses 24 through 27, we see another, what I'm calling an example of Christ's humility for the sake of the gospel. And so number, point number two is, the Son of God pays the temple tax in order to not give offense. The Son of God pays the temple tax in order to not give offense. Look at verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Okay, so what's going on here? Well, in Exodus chapter 30... God, through Moses, instituted a, a half-shekel tax for the upkeep of the tabernacle, right? And that was for every Israelite male, and, and it seemed like the, the initial sense of that was it was just to be a once-in-a-lifetime kind of tax that every Israelite male had to, had to pay. But as time went on, and I guess as you know, things got bigger and more expensive or whatever, uh, the priests and the leaders of the nation began to require it as an annual tax, Okay, so by the time we get to first century here, the time of Jesus, uh, this is something that the Jews did. This was not a Roman tax. They had to pay those, and they definitely hated those taxes, right? But this was something that the, 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 the Jewish leaders collected. Um, every year, every Israelite or every Jew, Jewish male, had to pay um, a half shekel tax for the upkeep of the temple. Now, uh, two drachma are equivalent to a half shekel, right? It was just, uh, my understanding of all that is, you know, in most of the world they were using coins that like the, the drachma, right? But then just in, for the temple they had the, the, the shekel coin, right? And so that's why um, you have the money changers and things, and, you know, you see that. So for people to, when they'd come, like uh, in the pilgrimages and the feasts, like Passover, when they'd come to Jerusalem, they'd often pay their tax. They had to go in and, and exchange the money. And of course, you know, there was 
they were charged a fee for that, and, and that, that's another story for another day. But, so this is the tax he's talking about, okay? And apparently here, Jesus had not yet paid the temple tax, so these guys, the collectors, confront Peter about it. And, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but I'm wondering if at this point, of course, they were always, right, the leaders always seem to be looking for, to try to get some, Jesus on something. But I'm wondering if at this point they're already kind of getting vibes from Jesus, if he's getting this reputation of, of someone who didn't agree with the current administration of the temple. Right, because if you remember back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And we're going to see this, this escalate at, throughout Jesus' ministry, especially as he goes to Jerusalem, right? He's, when he, he's going to drive out the money changers in Matthew 21. And in Matthew 23 and 24, he's going, to, he's going to predict the destruction of the temple. As a matter of fact, Jesus' views of the temple will be one of the charges that his enemies bring against him at his trial. So maybe we're starting to already see the, the initial uh, brewing of that controversy here and when he gets confronted. Hey, why, why is your, doesn't your master pay the tax? What's going on here? And Peter says, well, yeah, 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 he does, right? Yes, Jesus pays the tax. He's going to pay the tax. And I don't know if Peter knew that from a conversation with Jesus or if he's just saying, yeah, he'll take care of it. He's going to do that. Every good Jew does that. Matter of fact, again, like I said, they hated paying Roman taxes, and, but this was actually kind of considered a patriotic duty. Right? A good Jewish, Jewish man would, would do this. Verse uh, 25. And when he, Peter, came into the house, so they've had this conversation out there. Peter comes into the house Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So it's like, I don't know if Jesus heard what was going on or if he, you know, in his divine knowledge, he was just saying, Hey, I'm just going to bring this up with you right now, Peter. So look at what he's asking Peter. He's asked, he's, he wants him to think through this tax. Does Jesus really need to pay this tax? And so he, he gives him... He puts it in the realm of just earthly kings, earthly rulers. So he's saying, think about the kings of this earth, Peter. Think about human rulers. Every king collects taxes, right? But when he, let me ask you, does an earthly king usually tax his own sons who are living with him in the palace? Or does he take the tax from others? And so Peter's like, that's pretty easy, right? No, he, tax, he takes the tax from others. And Jesus is like, you're right. Then the sons are free. In other words, the sons are exempt. Sons of the king are exempt from being taxed because of who they are. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's, he's making a, a, a claim of divinity here. He's saying... What, think about this tax. This tax is for the temple. God is king. He's lord of the temple. I'm his son. I'm, I don't really need to pay this tax, he's saying. I'm exempt from this tax. Just as royal sons, you know, earthly kings, just as their sons are exempt from taxes imposed by their father, Jesus is saying, so I'm technically exempt from this tax that my father has imposed. That's what he's saying. 
So having made the point that as God's son, Jesus doesn't need to pay the temple tax, he continues in verse 27, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Remember, the tax was half a shekel. So he's saying, hey, you know, you'll... I mean, another amazing miracle, right? Jesus is Lord of creation. And he's saying, you're going to find this coin and it'll pay for you and me, Peter. But, But notice what he says. Not to give offense to them. Okay? That word offense is the Greek word scandalon. And you hear our, we get our English word scandal or scandalize from that, don't we? So the word means more than just kind of like a minor offense. It carries the idea of tripping up a person, causing them to stumble, specifically causing them to stumble spiritually. It scandalizes them. That's the, the, the thrust behind this word. So notice what Jesus is saying. Here in Matthew 17, I am the son of God. And, and so I am, as the son of God, I certainly am exempt from paying the temple tax. But so that we don't put an unnecessary obstacle in the way of these temple administrators or anyone else who'd be privy to this. So we don't put an obstacle in their way of believing in me. I will pay the tax. I think that's really cool. I understand that this second point is kind of a, maybe a, a, a smaller point than certainly the first one, right, of Jesus laying down his life. That's the ultimate example of humility. But there is something very important for us to grasp even from this account on the tax. There's an important, not only, again, does it once, once again point us to the, the glory of Jesus, his humility, but there's an important principle for us to follow here. Jesus is giving us an important example He's showing great humility. The son of, think about this, the son of God paying the temple tax. I mean, that's kind of almost funny, isn't it? What was the temple? Well, the temple was a place to meet with and worship God. Yet here is the son of God paying the tax for maintaining the temple. And I I thought about John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In Jesus, God was tabernacling among men, yet Jesus says, I'll pay the tax for the tabernacle, or now the temple. Even though he's the son of God, even though he himself is the fulfillment of the purpose of the temple, Jesus says, I will pay the temple tax. Even though the temple is going to be destroyed here within a generation I'm going to pay the temple tax so as not to give offense. Jesus knows that soon the temple will be obsolete. Jesus knows that he has come to fulfill the temple, that with his sacrifice, the the veil in the temple is going to be torn in two because access to God is going to be provided through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Yet he says, right now, to not give offense, I will pay the tax. Jesus does not want to create unnecessary barriers to people believing in and following him. I think that's very instructive. And you might say, well, you know, Jesus, 
I, you guys wouldn't say this, but I'll just play devil's advocate here, right? Well, maybe Jesus was just a kind of a wimpy little guy that never wanted to offend anybody. You know, that's not true, right? <laughs> Matter of fact, we've already seen that in chapter 15. That was when the Pharisees were bringing up this, you know, why don't you guys wash your hands, you know, and all that stuff. It was in that context, Matthew 15, 12, then the disciple, you know, Jesus re- replied and said, hey, you know, it's not, it's not uh, eating with unwashed hands that makes you, um, defiles a person. It's what comes from within, right? The words he says that what comes from his heart is what defiles a person. So then Matthew 15, 12, after Jesus had said that, the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Same word that we have here in Matthew 17. The Pharisees were offended? Jesus, what did Jesus say in Matthew 13? Oh no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) No, he says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So my point is, Jesus was willing to offend when it came to matters of the gospel, when it came to fundamental truth, he was willing to offend, right? Whereas here with the temple tax, this is simply a matter of custom where complying to this, even though tech, it's not necessary for him, he's the son of God, he's, he's thinking this is going to do no harm. And again, I don't want to, for me not to do this, it's going to potentially... Um, Hinder people coming to Christ. So, again, Jesus gives us an important example for showing humility for the sake of the gospel. For knowing when to be willing to cause offense and when not to be. And this is something we need to understand because I think sometimes we get this backwards. (laughs) We we offend when we shouldn't and and times when we need to stand for the truth and, and... risk offending, we, we shrink back, right? And so let's try to get this, get this right with God's help. So think through this with me, loved ones. We must not compromise the gospel. We must not compromise the truth of God's word. And we must understand that the, the gospel, the word of God, will cause offense. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. The Apostle Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So we have to be willing to be unpopular. unpopular. We have to be willing to cause offense when, when we just stand for the truth and recognize that people will, will not agree with that. But... We don't want to create more stumbling blocks through our prideful behavior and through demanding our rights. So think through this with me. We must be willing to hold firm to the gospel and to the truths of God's word. And if that causes offense, then we just have to accept that. But we must be willing to give up our rights in order to not cause offense to the and not create obstacles for the gospel. Again, uh, forgive me if I'm beating a, a dead horse here, but just to 
trying to make this clear, this distinction. There will be times when standing for the truth of the gospel and the fundamental doctrines of the faith will alienate others. And you guys have lived that, right? When you try to just hold to, the, to, to God's word, people say, oh, you know, what, you think you're better than somebody? Or they, they think Christians are hateful or, or, or homophobic or unloving or closed-minded. And we have to just, by God's grace, just uh, stand firm and, and, and suffer, if need be, for the sake of the gospel. We have to be willing to accept the fallout of that, right? But too often, Christians offend unbelievers over things that are not worth fighting over, right? Like a temple tax. And as I thought about this and thought about how it applies today, there's, there's many applications, okay? So I'm not going to just camp on this one, but I mean, the first thing that came to my mind is all the stuff about COVID, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have grieved over the last couple of years at, at, how the, at the lack of humility and love that Christians, and I'm speaking in a, in a broad, general way here, that Christians have displayed over some of the issues related to COVID. Churches, churches splitting or fracturing or whatever you want to say over wearing masks or not wearing masks. You know, maybe the leaders of the church, and out of love for others or whatever re- reasoning they came to, maybe they said, hey, you know what, we, we're going to require you to wear masks and, and you just hear time and time again whole groups of people saying, forget it. I'm not doing that. I'm out of here. You're like, really? What happened to united for the gospel? What happened to being a family of believers that you've covenanted together with? What happened to putting others' needs above your own? No, I'm not going to do that. Christians, again, I'll just say this just a little bit longer on this topic. Christians refusing to wear a mask when the store or the local government requires it. No, I'm not going to do that. It's my right. I don't have to do that. And then even worse than maybe they get on the social media and and rant about it or they they buy some shirt or or fake mask that that proclaims a message, you know, of, of, you know, rebellion. What unnecessary stumbling blocks and obstacles to the gospel when someone who's a Christian acts that way? I mean, you, you, they might as well just be pulling out a big tripwire and tripping over everybody who follows them on social media, you know, who might have an inkling of, of interest in Christ. I understand you can say, hey, masks don't work or whatever, or I have a right to not have to wear one. I get all that. But what happened to following Christ and being willing to give up our rights for the sake of another? Out of love, out of just not causing unnecessary offense. Paul provides an example of humility for the sake of the gospel. So not only do we have Jesus, the ultimate example, but Paul provides an example for us. 
Think back to our study through 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that he could have made a big deal about being paid as an apostle. He he could have even built his case from the teaching of the Old Testament. Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, he said. But he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 12, Nevertheless, we, meaning him and his companions, have not made use of this right. What right? The right to be paid. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That was Matthew, or 1 Corinthians 9, 12. Then later in verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. See what Paul's saying? I'm not going to demand my right. I'm not going to demand the rights that I have. Why? For the sake of the gospel. If I demanded to be paid, it might trip up someone who thinks that, oh, all preachers are are swindlers just trying to get rich. And so for the sake of the gospel, he says, I'm not going to demand compensation. So that's unbelievers, right? I mean, you know, primarily, I think, he's saying for the sake of, for unbelievers, believers too. But then definitely, then later in 1 Corinthians 14, he has believers in mind So when I say for the sake of the gospel, don't just be thinking unbelievers, right? I'm talking about even for believers. A few chapters later, then in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul does the exact same thing when it comes to eating meat. Remember that whole discussion? How in Corinth, where they had all this idolatry, and and so lots of times when you go into the store, the the meat that you would buy, it had just been used in some kind of pagan, idolatrous worship service, right? And so... (laughs) Paul said, hey, I know that Yahweh is the one true God, and therefore idols are a hoax, and so I have every right to buy and eat that meat. But Paul knew that some of the new believers in Corinth had recently been saved out of idolatry, and that eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols might somehow confuse that young believer or tempt him to return to idolatry. And so Paul said, if that's going to be the case... I'm going to handle this on a case-by-case basis, but if that's the case, I will never eat meat again. I'm going to give up that right. Why? For the sake of my brother. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to die to self so as not to cause my brother to stumble. It's not worth it. My brother in Christ is more important than eating meat. My brother in Christ is more important than me demanding my freedoms. My brother's faith and progress in the gospel is way more important to to me than me exercising some personal right that I have. So Paul is willing to give up his rights of receiving compensation for ministry and give up eating meat for the sake of the gospel. And we are called to the same type of humility. The New Testament repeatedly calls Christians to humility. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 1 Peter 5.5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Philippians 2.3, which again 
it leads into then the ex- great example of Christ's humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I know I've so far kind of been focusing on the harm that takes place when we don't show humility, right? The obstacles it puts, but the the converse is also true. When Christians show humility, we're we're pointing the way to Christ. We're, We're making the path straight. We're paving the road that God, by his grace, might draw them to Christ. So what an opportunity we have, loved ones. Think about it. When parents... When parents will humbly ask for forgiveness when they've sinned against each other, husband and wife have sinned against each other, or maybe they've sinned against their kids, when parents will ask for forgiveness, even from their kids, they're modeling the gospel for their kids. They're paving the way for the Spirit to draw their kids to faith in Christ. They're they're taking the seed that they, they try to faithfully sow into their kids, and they're just watering it and living it out before them. What an opportunity. When believers will humbly submit to the governing authorities in in areas, all areas that they can. Obviously, if it goes against the word of God, we can't. But when believers will humbly submit to governing authorities, that's a good testimony to unsaved co-workers. And say, you know, I notice you don't rant and rave about the government. I know you don't agree with a lot of the things they're doing, but man, there's a humility about you. There's a, there's a, there's a, a gentleness, a, a, a willingness to obey. That's Christ. That's the gospel. When believers will humbly defer to others and serve others in the body, that provides a living manifestation of Christ. That's us being the body of Christ to each other. And that's showing the outside world that God is in this place. So what an opportunity we have by showing humility. And so in closing, loved ones, again, my, the two things that I, I pray that God is teaching us from this is one, seeing the, and, be, and being in awe of the humility of Christ himself and then seeking to follow in his steps. So in closing, let us praise our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for his great humility that purchased our salvation and models how we are to live. Let us pray to the Lord, asking for discernment and courage to stand for the gospel and for grace to, to be humble and to die to self for the sake of the gospel. Right? In other words, I, I'm, I'm saying, let, let us pray. God, help me to know when to, when, when to be willing to offend and when not to be. Right? When, when to, to stand for the gospel. When to proclaim the gospel, even if it's going to offend. But may the gospel be what offends and not our... Um, unnecessary behavior, right? And then let, let us pray for the grace to humbly die to, to self, to serve. Let us daily seek the Lord, gazing on the beauty of Christ, 
gazing on the humility and love that Christ showed. That he is gentle and lowly in heart. Let us daily gaze on him so that his humble life will be increasingly lived out in us for the good of others and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we do stand in awe of you. And, and again, we ask for grace to, to understand the gospel in, in deeper and deeper ways. We know the love of Jesus and the grace, your grace are like, are like uh, uh, huge oceans that we will never, uh, in which we will never plumb the depths. But we want to keep, we want to keep digging. We want to keep understanding just the love and humility and grace that you have shown in saving us so that our hearts will just overflow with praise and so that as we behold your glory we will by your spirit be increasingly uh, conformed to your image for your glory and father we we pray for your your church universal lord please give us Wisdom. We know these are confusing times. These are challenging times. Um, give, us, give us courage to stand for, the, for the, the word of God, for the gospel. To be willing to, count the, to accept the, the cost. And also, for, Father, please give us humility to know what things are not worth fighting over. And to just be willing to humbly give up our preferences or even our rights so as to not put an obstacle in the way of, of unbelievers. Father, thank you for your, your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. And, and I'm so thankful that his life is in us. And so we just pray that his life will increasingly be shown in us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you stand, please? Let's continue to worship the Lord in song now.